0: Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. Welcome to season two. We're back with more conversations about the job and the joy of parenting. So let's get to it. Parents, what's got your attention these days? Well, many of you, especially parents of younger children, are laser focused on how your kid's education is going this school year. So, how's it going? Are your children in class with masks and distancing? Are they at home with a new and improved online curriculum? Are they in some sort of hybrid model which seems to change with every week? How are they going to learn and how can we help? Today, I am so pleased to welcome someone who's also laser focused on these issues and is providing answers. Sal Khan, founder and CEO of Khan Academy, a free online teaching and learning platform. I discovered Khan Academy in 2011 when one of my sons needed help with physics. I searched online and there were these videos of blackboards with this really friendly voice, patiently explaining physics principles. It was genius. So I really helped him understand what was going on. I first wrote about it in the Ground Control Parenting blog back in 2011, and I've been following its exponential growth ever since. Khan Academy is supported by philanthropy, donations, and earned revenue, and all learning resources are free. Sal's long view vision for Khan Academy a free world class education for anyone, anywhere. Sal and his wife, Umama, who is a practicing rheumatologist, have three children Imran, 11, Dia is nine and Azad is five. They are raising their children in Northern California. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Sal. Great
1: to be here, Carol.
0: I I really want to thank you for making the time to join us today because you're normally a busy guy. And as we struggle through this pandemic, you become a super busy guy as Khan Academy stretches in every way possible to help meet the home learning needs of kids and parents everywhere. So thank you. So just for those of you, the few of you who may not be familiar with the story of Khan Academy, it started in 2004 with Sal, who was a hedge fund analyst by day. He became a family math tutor by night, tutoring his cousin and then his extended family members by posting his tutorial videos on YouTube and writing software to provide practice problems. In 2009, after seeing how thousands of people were benefiting from his tutorials, he quit his day job to run the nonprofit Khan Academy full time fast forward to 2020 when even before covid hit Khan Academy was averaging 20 million users a month and now it has with 30 million users a month 110 million registered users so your dream of a free world class education for everyone is is really being realized so in this podcast we normally start by talking about your personal parenting philosophy and its derivation but in light of the current health crisis I want to start with how Khan Academy has been working to help parents and teachers and schools across the nation. So can you give us kind of an overview of what you're seeing across the country? I know you partner with public schools and many of whom primarily serve students of color. Are are most of them learning remotely? And, And what are you hearing about how it's going?
1: Yeah, you know, we're seeing different things than we saw in the spring. In the spring, we saw just a lot of inconsistency you know, even within one school, one teacher was able to do reasonably good distance learning while, you know, their their neighboring teacher when they were in person was maybe not able to. And, you know, a lot of the school districts, especially the larger school districts felt a little bit paralyzed. Some of the smaller school districts actually were able to move quite fast, but you can imagine the larger ones had to think of things like social services, lunch programs, how do you make sure it's equitable if 20, 30% of the school district doesn't have sufficient internet access, or even if you are able to get them internet access with devices. Uh, if five, ten percent of the kids are still not engaged or don't have the supports at home, how do you reach them? What we've seen as we go, when, you know, this back to school, you know, there's been a few unfortunate things, one is, there's been so much back and forth about whether school can even open right. uh, for the past four, five, six months that even as we got into late July and early August, most of the superintendents and chief academic officers we were talking to were still just trying to figure out how to do the physical logistics of school, if if doing it at all, or to do distance learning or hybrid or everything you just described. And so, what we saw there, there was a little bit of a gap of how do you actually implement distance learning well? Uh, that that frankly a lot of thought hadn't been given on the instructional side Mm -hmm. Uh, and so what we what we're seeing this back to school and it's almost the opposite of what we saw in the spring in the spring almost too little was happening Uh, this back to school uh, we're seeing where they are doing distance learning some states are 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 doing in-person learning one of my close friends is a school teacher in utah and they're fully in person, uh, but most of the country is still. I think it, it's about. It feels like it's about sixty percent is has moved. You know, is doing full distance learning, and uh, you, you know they've essentially transplanted the the six hours of school straight onto video conference. And uh, you can imagine that's a little bit overwhelming for everyone. I think mm-hmm. it's overwhelming for the parents, for the students, and 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 for the teachers, frankly. Um, so. Mm-hmm. It's an, it's an interesting situation. Now I'm seeing in the spring, I saw parents get stressed that not enough was happening for the kids. Now I'm seeing parents get stressed that too much is happening for their kids.
0: But <laughs> what I hear, parents are worried about several things. Um, to your point, they're worried about, um, is, it, is, is it enough? Is it too much? How can they make sure their children are on track? And what does that really mean? They're worried about managing their children's remote learning and their own work in, when they're working from home, and they're worried about keeping their children motivated. I know that Khan Academy has a lot of tools to help parents understand where they are. Can you just give us a kind of snapshot? And, and I know you've been recommending that there's a prescription for parents who don't have Khan Academy already in their school system, how they can use it to sort of get a feed on how their children are doing.
1: Sure, you know, Khan Academy, as you introduced, uh, you know, we're a not-for-profit mission-free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. And the way that we're attempting to uh, move as far as we can on that mission is uh, through online, free uh, tools, content software for young kids. Mm-hmm. We have something called Khan Academy Kids. It just got launched about a year and a half ago. A lot of folks don't realize what this is. Khan Academy Kids is, covers math, reading, writing, social-emotional learning, all of the standards from the Head Start pre-K standards through the kindergarten, first grade, and now we're expanding into second grade standards. It has over several hundred books in it. it, has several thousand activities in it. And it, like everything we do at Khan Academy, it's meant to adapt to where the student is. And we've also run efficacy studies on where students are able to put even 20, 30 minutes a day on Khan Academy kids across these various subjects Uh, they are able to accelerate quite dramatically for kids who had gaps and who were kind of behind their peers, they were able to close it. And for other kids, they were able to move ahead. Uh, So I highly recommend that if you have kids ages, let's call it three to six. Uh, Now for older kids, you could call that mainstream Khan Academy. If you go to our, you know, you download the regular Khan Academy app or go to khanacademy.org. And that's where Uh, We have content for elementary, middle, high school, and also early college. Math is where we have the most and we're deepest. We literally have every major standard, actually every standard uh, that you can cover in this modality. We do cover uh, from as early as kindergarten all the way through calculus, statistics, and even multivariable calculus. And our whole idea is not only giving a chance for students to get as much practice and feedback. And a lot of folks associate Khan Academy with videos, but we put most of our resources into the practice and feedback because that's where we think most of the learning occurs. There are also videos to help support that learning. There's a hints, there's solutions uh, for everything. And there's teacher tools, which parents can also use to monitor their children's progress. Uh, and you can imagine kids can just learn at their own time and pace, or they could do it in a classroom setting. And once you get into the high school years, uh, we have biology, chemistry, physics, uh, economics. Uh, so almost everything that a high schooler might need. We also have. Uh, we've also started to dabble a little bit in the humanities, in uh, the histories and uh, civics and government. So I highly recommend for all of those age levels. But to your point about parents worried about their kids atrophying or falling behind, what I've been stressing to parents, and I've been telling this to myself because it's easy. It's easy for a parent, including myself. To you know, look at your neighbors' kids and say, "Oh, they're doing this and this and that." How are you know? We're barely keeping our head above water with with half of that. Is to remind folks that you, you know the reading, the writing, and the mathematics the you know classic three R's. I, I would say it should be two R's and an A. I, it, it always bothers me. It's <laughs> <there's> three R's <laughs> arithmetic. <laughs> it's, but but it's uh th- those it's a kind of a traditional viewpoint. But those really are the things that you 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 can't drop. Uh, you know the other topics they're important. But if you have strong core mathematical skills, strong reading comprehension skills, and strong writing skills, if those don't atrophy, you'll be fine in pretty much any domain you go into. Mm -hmm. And to make sure those don't atrophy, it doesn't require six hours a day. Depending on the age of the student, 20 to 30 minutes a day on Khan Academy, we see great efficacy studies when students are able to put in 45 minutes a week. So you can imagine if you put in 20, 30 minutes a day, there's tools where, teacher or the teachers or the parents or the students can identify what their learning edge is. They can learn at their own time and pace. Uh, I have confidence that in a few months, uh, if you have a child that wasn't confident in math, they're going to become very confident in math because not only will they keep up or catch up to their class, uh, they'll probably move, move ahead of their class. If you're talking about reading, you know, we have some tools. There's some great online, you know, tools. Some of those you might have to pay for. Uh, uh, Lexia, Raz Kids, Newzella are those are four pay ones, but they're you know pretty good. Uh, but it could be as simple as reading a magazine uh, article every day and mm-hmm. discussing at lunch. Uh, that's the kind of thing that will make sure that your child doesn't atrophy there. And then on the writing, it can be just journaling or, or maybe once a week saying, hey, we're going to write a blog post together and share it with our grandparents or whoever it might be. Mm-hmm. If you do those three things, uh, and I think that, that could take maybe 30, 40 minutes each per day. So we're talking about maybe two hours a day. Your children are going to be just fine. And in a lot of ways, what I just described, because they're going to get, a, get to do it with you or maybe a sibling or uh, or, or your partner, uh, it, it'll be more personalized. And they'll actually probably get more motivated and engaged than some of what typically happens during their school day.
0: Yeah, that's a great, great bit of advice because parents are looking for ways to supplement. I mean, even if their kid has to sit in front of a video screen for a long time and you fear they're not getting anything, if you spend that 20 to 30 minutes a day with them, it can make all the difference in the world and you can sleep a little easier knowing that you've done your part to help them. So, you know, one of the, the tenets of Khan Academy is that anyone can learn anything and because of this concept of gaps that have occurred in early learning that you can and and you can master subjects. Can you talk a little bit about the gaps and how mastery helps fill in the gaps?
1: Yeah, you know, in a traditional academic model, let's say we're in a fifth grade math class, you know, the, the, the teacher will give a lesson on say dividing decimals, we'll do some homework. We, we might get some of it wrong, but there's not a lot of feedback in that process. After a couple of weeks, we take a quiz or a test and let's say on that test, you get an 80%, I get a 70%. Even though that test has identified gaps, the class will move on to the next concept. It might be word problems with dividing decimals now, Mm -hmm. somehow expecting both of us to understand that next concept, even though we didn't know 20 or 30% of the previous one. And also when I got that 70% on the dividing decimals, I'm given a C minus or a D or whatever 70% translates to. And it's kind of put into my grade book and I'm, taught to believe that that's who I am. I am a C student, I am a D student. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to go to the next subject. And if I'm lucky, I'm gonna be able to get a C or a D on that. And that process keeps going on. Those gaps keep accumulating and then all of a sudden you get to an algebra class. And I think algebra is where, especially in math where this happens because it assumes to some degree that you've mastered all of this arithmetic beforehand where the equation on the board involves dividing a decimal with an exponent and a negative number. and we just don't understand what's going on. And it has nothing to do with our innate ability. It has nothing to do with the quality of the teacher. It hasn't, has nothing to do with uh, whether algebra is difficult or not. It's because we have these gaps from fourth grade, fifth grade, seventh grade that are very hard to address in an algebra class, but the algebra assumes that you have mastered it. And so this notion of mastery learning is instead of holding fixed when and how long you work on something, pretty much ensure a variable outcome. Those are those grades, A, B, C, D, F. Do it the other way around. Allow students, if they add a 70%, if they're an 80%, give them the incentive and the motivation and the awareness to say, hey, you're to 70% for now. You're not going to forever be a D student in dividing decimals, keep working on it. This is a really important thing. If you don't understand how to divide decimals, it's gonna hold back the rest of your mathematical career. And 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 then if you work on it, then you you have a strong foundation that you can build from. And you know what I'm talking about. It isn't just some you know ivory tower you know academic debate. In the United States, seventy percent, seven zero percent of all kids who go to community college are when they take the placement test. The community colleges say you are not even ready to learn algebra yet. Mm. So these are kids that go through the motions of you know algebra, geometry, algebra two, some take pre-calculus, calculus. So the whole system was putting the kids through the motions, but it was pretend learning because they had all of these gaps. And the first time that mastery learning in some way, shape or form is enforced is when you get to college. Now, if we were talking 50 years ago, this would have said like, okay, that's kind of utopian, Sal. How does a teacher with 30 kids in their classroom address the individual gaps of those 30 kids. Different kids are going to have different gaps, they're gonna to to learn at different paces. And we would have been right, 40, 50 years ago, there was wouldn't have been a systemic tool to do it. But the reality is actually even 40, 50 years ago is the affluent families uh, were doing mastery learning. When they saw that their, their kid only had an 80% understanding, they said, okay, we're gonna hire a tutor and we're gonna make sure that you don't have that 20% gap in your dividing decimals. But today, the good thing is, we do have tools, that's what Khan Academy is for. A teacher can have all of their students work on Khan Academy, ideally at their own time and pace. They can also make kind of whole class assignments on Khan Academy. But then the teacher has an understanding of where students gaps are well before they have to take a test and we also have mechanisms where you can identify gaps from before grade level. So we have the we have for every grade level course on Khan Academy we have something called get ready for grade level course. So we have a get ready for 6th grade, get ready for 7th grade, get ready for 3rd grade. And that covers all the prerequisites up to that grade level. And so students can take the course challenge on that, which is really just sampling the entire course. If they get a 90%, 100% on that, they're ready for their grade level. But if they get a 50%, that means they have significant gaps. But the course allows them to then fill in those gaps and just the gaps that they need. They don't have to repeat everything. They just have mm-hmm. to fill in the gaps that they need to have filled in. And they can do that in parallel that they're doing their grade level work. Or I, I think this is going to be one of those years where it makes sense to front load a lot of that mm-hmm. uh, so mm-hmm. that people have a strong foundation. Mm-hmm. But even if a school isn't doing it, this is exactly the type of supplemental thing that I think I hope every parent can do with their child. I'm talking maybe you know 20 minutes a day. It's mm-hmm. not something mm-hmm. that is you know, super uh, intrusive, but I actually think it'll be as effective as, you know, getting a fancy tutor.
0: So, you know, when, you, when you're talking about this, it occurs to me that this is sort of, this is really important for parents to hear because it kind of goes against what we think of in terms of how education works or is supposed to work. Um, I've heard so many parents complain that, particularly parents that are paying for school, but but parents across the board, that They discover that their child's not doing well and they have to hire a tutor and they're upset because they think the school should be teaching them better and they resent that they have to hire someone. And and it becomes not a question of whether the child is learning or what degree the child's learning, but more the structure of how they're getting information. And there's a sense that you're cheating if you get a tutor because to make it a level playing field, you should all have access to the same information. What what I really like about what you're saying is it strips away all of that stuff and it really talks about how children learn. And if they learn by mastery and if it, they learn best by a one-on-one association with a person or a program that's going to continually advise them until they get to where they need to get, that's they learn. I mean, and that's really important. I mean, there's this concept that parents... Um, who are asking about if you get an A minus, where's that A, are sort of those hyper type A parents that are pushing their children. But another view of that is that the question about what you missed is more an effort to make sure that you master the material. I mean, that's kind of revolutionary in terms of how parents think.
1: yeah, well, you know, I I think there's a lot in that. Even families who can afford tutoring, I think part of the the unfortunate thing is that usually doesn't kick in until middle school or high school. Mm -hmm. And so you can even get, you know, the best tutor into your house or on Zoom. But if your child has fundamental problems from fifth grade, it's actually very hard for even that tutor to, to help ha- help them understand that algebra. Mm-hmm. And so we've all seen these types of tutoring sessions. I've, you know, I used to be a tutor and I, and, and I mean, Khan Academy started with me tutoring cousins. And I saw that when we just engaged in the algebra it felt frustrating for both the tutor and the student because I, I felt like I was explaining the algebra over and over again, but they were getting frustrated. And it was a big aha for me when I was tutoring my cousins which led to Khan Academy that the error was not in the algebra that they were getting intimidated by the fractions they were getting intimidated by the dividing decimals you know and, and my cousins went to good schools sometimes their multiplication tables they didn't get their math facts where they need to be and so you know what i try to do as a parent and you know i'm going to give a little bit of my secret tiger parent sauce here <laughs> is and you know it's not it really isn't in the spirit of like you know trying to keep up with the joneses or compete mm-hmm. or being a tiger parent you know i'm i'm kind of joking it's really just making sure that my kids have a strong foundation so that they have confidence and that they're not told that you know something is beyond them for really because they just have gaps in their knowledge. So for example, my son, who's the oldest, Imran, really ever since he's he was about six or seven, uh, you know, I started sitting down with him. Not every day. We have our days that are super tiring and et cetera, et cetera. But you know, at least three days a week, four days a week, I would spend 15 minutes with him, 20 minutes, where I would just sit next to him. He would work on Khan Academy. I would be there to answer any questions, and you know, sometimes I could watch on his shoulder, and it would give it would give me a lens into what he was thinking. And it doesn't you don't even have to use high tech tools. For my daughter, who's nine, who's just starting, you know, what would be the equivalent of fourth grade, you know, I'm just making sure she gets her multiplication tables right, and you know, she understands a lot of the math. But every now and then, I throw out a six times eight, and she's like forty two. I'm like, no, 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 okay, let's work on this. <laughs> six, and, and but it's really important. It 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 if she if she if she goes to fifth, sixth grade, not having six times eight, like at the tip of her tongue, mm-hmm. and this is well backed by learning science, is that cognitive load of having to re-figure out six times eight, when you're trying to solve an algebra equation, mm-hmm. is gonna slow her down with the algebra, it's gonna make the algebra really, really difficult. So it's really just about putting that 15, 20 minutes a day, you could use, I mean, I recommend using Khan Academy, try to find the kid's learning edge and make it a, a thing where the parent and the children are doing it together that they'll they'll have a very strong foundation
0: you mentioned learning edge can you just explain how parents find the learning edge
1: yeah so you know this the fancy term for learning edge and edge you speak is zone of proximal development and you know it's just a fancy way of saying is those that set of skills that are you're just ready to learn but you haven't learned yet Mm -hmm. and you know, the the irony is in a traditional classroom and there's been studies on it, you know, a teacher has to go at, in a, in a, at a set pace and you might think that they, they cater to the average, but most of the studies say that the teachers cater to the 22nd percentile because mm-hmm. if you cater to the average, you know, Losing half yeah. the kids is, is kind of a painful experience for everyone, so they cater to the 22nd percentile. But even that, you're still losing 21% of the kids, and you still have 77% of the kids who are feeling bored. So, like, only that kid exactly in the 22nd percentile feels like this is exactly what I need. Um, yeah, it might be one kid in the room, you know, that kid, um. And 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 the rest of the kids are feeling disengaged. And the thing is, it's not like it's always the same kids in the 22nd percentile. Different people learn uh, different things at at different rates. And so, you you know, the idea here is: can we create tools so that the teachers don't have to make that compromise? They can allow every student to learn at their zone of proximal development. You know, the the mm-hmm. analogy I'd make is: imagine if we're learning a sport. Let's say we're learning how to play, you know, basketball. Um, you know, I I can dribble just fine, but I'm horrible at free throws. Well, too bad the class is on dribbling. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, and I you know, I could add to that metaphor, you know, it, the homework is free throws, but I don't know whether I made any of the free throws until the next morning, maybe. You know, how are you going to learn that? I should be working on free throws. Maybe you need to work on dribbling or maybe you've mastered free throws as well. You should be working on three-pointers or layups or mm-hmm. defense or or whatever whatever it might be. Whatever, you know, and and, and that's what I Coach would do. You know, if you have a personal trainer, they don't say everyone in the gym do curls with 10 pounds. They try to find your zone of proximal development. They try to find, okay, Carol can curl 50 pounds, Sal can curl 15 pounds. <laughs> let's <laughs> not make Sal curl 50, and let's not make <laughs> Carol curl 15.
0: <laughs> That's a very helpful explanation. I just want to segue a little because I understand you have a pet project new project unrelated to Khan Academy project that is more focused on tutoring um it's called schoolhouse world is that correct schoolhouse.world yeah school schoolhouse.world yeah this is a
1: project and you know I'm, I'm very clear and you were you were very helpful it's a separate <laughs> project than Khan Academy uh, i hope one day th- these things can converge but i, I i'm very careful about that yes. because I don't, you know, we need to keep everything focused and nimble and all of that. Absolutely. But the you know, the, the, the schoolhouse.world project, this has always been a dream of mine. You know, when I wrote the book, One World Schoolhouse, which you could imagine schoolhouse.world is derived from <laughs> that name. It was imagining a world where you have Khan Academy that's able to reach hundreds of millions of folks, give them as much practice feedback as they need, tools for their parents and their teachers to keep track, ways to use it in a classroom. But wouldn't it be incredible if we could also create people, you know, create connections between people uh, and make learning a fundamentally social thing? Mm. And it's been always a dream. But then COVID hit. And when, in March and April and May, we saw that children's access, not just children, learners of all ages, access to live instruction and to a learning community was so unequal. In fact, most kids were not getting uh, an adequate access to a learning community. And I would say even now that people have transplanted schools, it still doesn't Always feel necessarily like a learning community. No, Mm -hmm. we 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 thought. I've been working with some volunteers. Wouldn't it be great if we could create a place where kids could say what they need help in, and vetted high quality tutors can run group tutoring sessions on those topics. And, uh, you know, we launched it uh, over the summer, a couple of months ago. Uh, there's a couple of thousand kids on it. Actually, we're, we have capacity for several thousand more kids. So anyone listening to this, <laughs> I mean, we're starting with high school math and then SAT in both math and verbal, but we're going to expand to... Pretty much all subjects so whatever you're interested in and all grades so you know you can go register and we're letting tutors and students in as we have uh, supply and demand uh, but the goal really is you know can we create this schoolhouse for the world uh, connecting people and I've been running some sessions and it was incredible we had a one kid from Ghana we had a, a, a girl from Connecticut a, a boy from Pakistan a kid from the UK all show up for the same class like wow. and it was and it was great I mean you know these are kids that I had just met. <laughs> but we it was a really powerful experience. Hopefully they learned some math, but even more they 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 got to interact with each other. Uh, the other aspect of schoolhouse.world is another issue that COVID has surfaced, which has been very hard to provide robust assessment for students. Uh, you know, things like the SATs and ACTs, testing administrations have have been spotty. Um, you, you know, teachers haven't sometimes haven't been given grades. Uh, it's been harder to kind of vet whether kids are cheating or not. Mm-hmm, Hopefully most mm-hmm. kids aren't, but you can imagine some probably are. And so another aspect of Schoolhouse, also leveraging the community is allowing students to get verified by the of the work they do on Khan Academy. So we have these mm-hmm. course challenges and unit tests on Khan Academy, and you can take them as many times as you want without, you know, you're not gonna get repeat questions. Mm-hmm. And kids are able to film themselves while they talk out loud, explaining their reasoning. They submit that to schoolhouse.world. We're going to uh, actually start this in about a week. And then other members of the community who have already been certified in that subject say, oh yeah, it looks like that was, Carol did it. She understands it. Yes, she got 90% on systems of equations. We give her credit on the schoolhouse transcript, so to speak. And uh, what we're, we're going to have an announcement in a couple of weeks for, with some major universities uh, that they're going to use this uh, as part of the upcoming admission cycle uh, because there's so little evidence out there because of COVID.
0: Wow, that is amazing. So not only, I mean, as you just described, does it give colleges, which goodness knows they're going to need all the different tools they can get in this season, a, a, an additional way to confirm um, the academics. It gives kids an amazing people, an amazing validation. And I want to talk about this for a minute. You've seen how the validation of being able to get something done well, I mean, you t- is, is key to, to enjoying learning. You talked about your cousin, Nadia, the first part of your tutoring involved cracking through her, her, her sense that she couldn't do it. I mean, giving her enough self-esteem to actually do the work. And then with your help, she not only did the work, but really um, excelled. And who wouldn't want to go through that and then just sort of have certified that you know what you're talking about.
1: Then the next layer layers of certification are actually how good of a tutor are you? And mm. so that's something that you can't fake. And uh, on top of that, uh, it builds all these other muscles well beyond. I mean, obviously, to be a good tutor, you have to know the material well, but you also have to communicate well. You have to have really strong empathy. And then it kind of pays it forward and it builds. We, we
0: imagine a supply of, of really good tutors. Mm. You know, I've heard you say um, uh, about parents unwittingly contribute to the concept of learning not being fun by saying, oh, you know, I was bad at this, you know, don't worry about it. Or, um, yes, I know it's boring. Or, and I imagine this is a pet peeve of yours, you'll never need this again in life, where in fact, there's so much of math that you actually do need later on. So, parents really have to be careful about squashing that. I mean, you can't change your spots, but <laughs> you can. No, well, you,
1: I, I think, you know, as parents, we should change our spots because it is so easy to project our own insecurities onto our onto our children, or even worse, our own biases onto our children.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, as you mentioned, I saw this with Nadia. She was about 12 years old back in 2004, and she had already convinced herself that she wasn't good at math. I think some of that might've been projected onto her, you know, based on gender, et cetera, et cetera. And it took, a few weeks of me, you know, and frankly, it didn't matter what I said, what kind of a pep talk I gave her, it was more for her to see that she could master the subjects. And once she could master them, and and she saw that I had high expectations of her, then not only did she, I was able to deprogram that lack of self-esteem, then she started to become confident. This is the same Nadia, when I first started tutoring her in August of 2004, she was in essentially in a remedial math class and thought that she couldn't understand unit conversion. By December, I convinced her school to let her retake the placement exam. She was put into the advanced track. By that summer, she was taking classes at the University of New Orleans in math as a 13-year-old. Uh, so it was complete night and day to the same young woman. And you know, I've read some psychology research that kids start or we start forming our, our impression of ourselves as early as eight or nine years old. Like a five-year-old doesn't say like, oh, I'm good at this or I'm good at that. They just do stuff. By eight or nine, you start hearing some of that language. Oh, I'm this person. I'm that person. And sometimes it could be these positive voices in your head, but sometimes it can be negative voices. Mm -hmm. And I think by the time you get to about 13 or 14, it's very hard to deprogram those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, not that you shouldn't try. Once again, I don't want to (laughs) be negative. You should definitely try. Uh, But, you know, you have this window, especially in late elementary early, late elementary, middle school, where I think, you know, it pays huge dividends for parents to sit down next to the kids. And once again, it's not do as I say, not as I do, it should be do as I do. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. you as a parent say, you know, you lean into this notion of, yeah, you know, what I'm going to learn with you. You know, you're going to work 20 minutes of economy. I'm either going to learn the same stuff you're learning because I would love to fill in my gaps and it's exciting and I love this stuff mm-hmm. or you know what? you work you work on your algebra, I'm going to learn calculus because I never really learned that before, and I'm going to do that, and we're we're going to do it at the same time, and we're going to talk about it. You can't underestimate how powerful that is for children. You know I have a, a little conversation group that I have with a bunch of friends, and our last weekend was about parenting, and there's this quote we read i'm I'm paraphrasing, but it's like children don't listen to what parents say, but they do they do emulate what parents do. Mm. And so, if you say stuff like "oh, learning is boring" or "I never liked that subject," they're just going to mimic that. But if you say, "look, this is exciting! Wow, I, I, you know, I miss learning," it's going to completely change their uh, attitudes toward it. And your point about it's true. When I make something on Khan Academy, when I make a video, I'm excited about it. I won't press record unless I'm genuinely excited and intrigued by it. But I can't, it blows my mind how many folks will teach something that they are like not excited about, which is clearly going to shut down the listener. All right, the next step. Is this I was like If you do that, like who's going to pay attention? Like it, it's not going to be engaging for anyone.
0: So I'm, I'm segueing now into Sal Khan, um, the parent and, and the child, because I often say to parents, you have to parent the child that you have, not the one that you were or the one that you wished for. And that's a challenge. That's a goal for parenting. So I know that you grew up um, with your mom and your sister in Metairie, Louisiana, which is in New Orleans, near New Orleans, close to New Orleans.
1: If you go to the airport in New Orleans, you drive through Metairie to get to New Orleans.
0: (laughs) And and you have described yourself from day one as a really, really engaged and interested learner. Um, But you've also said that your mom was very interested in you being a a good student. Was that helpful was that pressure? Yeah, you know,
1: I I have um in some ways a very un, unusual childhood. I, my my family came out to the US. My father was a doctor. This is kind of a stereotypical story in the late 60s, you know, American immigration policy changed, the local uh, a shortage of healthcare workers. So if you meet um South Asian Americans who are roughly my age born in the 70s, almost all of their parents are, are doctors of some form. So, you know, the story starts with like, okay, this is going to be a nice upper (laughs) middle-class narrative. Uh, But uh, by the time I was two uh, you know, the marriage falls apart. My father, you know, he went through, I think some serious, I don't know, it was depression or whatever he leaves. um, And, and, you know, he barely makes ends meet even though he's a doctor and, you know, there's a whole story there. And then my mom is essentially raising us as a single parent. And so, she, um, you know, wasn't super educated. She'd done a little bit of college in in India, but you know, didn't finish. And so she was, you know, she was a lady who emptied the vending machines at the hospital where I was born. Mm-hmm. She, you know, most of my life, she was working minimum wage jobs as a cashier at uh, you know random convenience stores. Eventually, we kind of scrounged up enough money to kind of have a very small convenience store, and that failed. <laughs> so we we didn't have a lot of money. And and my mom, it was this weird cross current where her unlike a lot of the stereotypical south Asians who came in the 60s and early 70s as you know and and as as families of 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 doctors um my mom's family actually did not their education was disrupted a lot my grandfather was a poet he was kind of kind of a a hippie, if you will. And so my mom and her siblings kind of raised themselves in a lot of ways. And, you know, they were being moved every couple of years. And so they didn't even really understand the education system. So it was funny, on some level, my mom and and my uncles that lived in New Orleans, you know, they they were a very musical family, they would sing, they would would essentially party regularly until two or three in the morning, Uh, on weekdays. I mean, I remember me and my sister, we just like fall asleep in the middle of you know, while my uncles were playing tabla and my mom singing, and we're like, I have to go home. I have to go do homework. So we weren't getting the, the stereotypical like, you know, you gotta you gotta get good grades. But the cross current was um, a lot of uh, you know, we would go to these, for lack of a word, or Indian parties where uh, some of the other kids who were in these upper middle class or you know affluent families, where their parents were doctors and engineers and all of that. It, it did create this kind of cultural expectation of like, mm-hmm. you know, there aren't a lot of South Asians right now in New Orleans. And I remember, you know, there's this kid Thuheen who was 10 years older than me. And, you know, he finished his like, he, he graduated from Tulane at 14 and finished his PhD at 18. And so it was this weird cross current where our family was like constantly partying for lack of a better word. Uh, but my mom was constantly saying, how come you're not like Thuhin? And I was like, Thuhin's parents aren't singing until two in the morning. Thuhin's parents are sitting down with Thuhin. And, and so, but anyway, I, in some ways, I think it, it, it was it was good. I mean, to your point, I I try not to be so dissonant with my own children um, and and try to be a little bit more of a standard engaged parent
0: (laughs) (laughs) when you got to school you said the you you first felt academic validation from your teachers and that was in elementary school that was early on
1: yeah you know it's it's funny and I also have one of these families where they they tend to project onto kids very fast like oh he's that kid he's (laughs) you know my sister I mean literally people would say this to my face I remember when I was six or seven like far is the smart one (laughs) you know Sal Sal, Sal is you know he's (laughs) He likes to draw, you know. And it would be said in that, in that kind of tone, and uh, you know, it was early on. My sister, I mean, she was a smart one, and and she's three years older. And um, you know, early on, I, people couldn't even understand what I was saying. Uh, you know, I was. Uh, I remember in kindergarten and first grade, I was. I was in speech therapy. Um, I remember being frustrated myself that people couldn't understand what I was saying. The teachers couldn't. Understand. No one could understand what I think I was mixing Bengali and English, oh, and I couldn't interesting. Either, And I had a, some type of a speech impediment or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but but because Farah was my sister, by the time I got to second or third grade, which were like these are the first teachers that had experienced my sister, they said, "Oh, he's Farah's brother." But it would it it frankly played to my favor, mm-hmm. where the teachers kind of believed in me because I was Farah's brother. So they like, there was no evidence that I should be tested for the gifted program. I mean, I couldn't talk properly, <laughs> um, but they kept testing me. And by second grade, I guess my I'd gotten over my speech impediment, I got in. And that was the first time. I mean, that's a huge point of validation. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when you're in that enrichment program, the teachers there really do look at you as someone who's going to, do something. And, you know, this was in Jefferson Parish public schools. It's, you know, this isn't a famous school district. It's in Metairie, Louisiana. Louisiana is not famous for its schools. Uh, But I remember many moments having amazing teachers uh, and them, you know, believing in me made a huge difference.
0: So you grew up with a mom asking you um, sort of, why aren't you like your friend or why aren't you excelling? You managed to excel how does that impact the way that you view your children? I mean, you, you know, when you read about your work, it seems like, oh, yes, that's that kid that was always really smart. I mean, really smart all the way through, went to MIT. I mean, that's the kid that everything came very easily to. And, and so I don't, it sounds like that may or may not have been the case, but now you have three children who are all going to have their own learning styles. How do you approach your expectations of of their academics?
1: Well, you know, on the first point about, you know, my my own childhood, you know, depending on the class, I was either the, you know, like the, the teacher's favorite, or in many cases, I was probably the teacher's least favorite. You know, when I felt like a, and I remember even as early as third or fourth grade, if I felt like something was disengaging or boring, I would show it. And, you know, on one level, I was really into the learning. I was the kid that would regardless of what the teacher was doing, I would do my own exploration. So once again, that's kind of a good behavior but a bad behavior at the same time. Sometimes that got me in trouble and sometimes that got me angry at the system and mm-hmm. so it was it was it was that mixed uh, cross currents. You know what what I try to do for my own children. I think it's very tempting to fall into the you know, the the what are other kids doing what are other families doing um you know they're going to fall behind everyone else is getting all this other supplemental thing for their kids but you know one thing that i do actually really appreciate from my childhood is you know i remember seeing what what i at the time considered the rich kids uh you know getting their after school practice and their tennis practice and their piano and i would envy them i did envy them you know we had none of that stuff um but i had time And so I would sit, I remember I would watch, you know, He-Man and just draw all day. And that boredom and that lack of like some adult telling me what to do. My mom wouldn't show up until, you know, me and my sister were what, you know, we're in the eighties called latchkey Mm -hmm. kids. We would take the bus home two or three in the afternoon turn on the TV and my mom wouldn't come until six or 7 p.m. And um, so we just had time. (laughs) We would draw, my sister was a bookworm. And so one thing I remind myself for my own kids is don't fall into the trap of just over-scheduling your children. Mm -hmm. Make sure they have some of that time, make sure they have some of that boredom uh, where they figure out something to do with themselves. And you know, it, it does pay off. Sometimes when my kids are bored, they're like, I'm bored. Can I watch TV? And we say, no, you know, figure it out. A couple of hours later, I see my daughter and my five-year-old, they're digging holes in the backyard. I'm like, that's great. They're digging. I don't know why they're digging holes, but they're digging holes. Like that seems like a, they're digging for treasure. They're doing something. But that type of creativity, I think, is really powerful mm-hmm. uh, that you you don't want to over schedule. So yeah, for me, it's all about making sure they have strong foundations, making sure that they have time for creativity and exploration, uh, making sure that we see them as parents. This is something we, I have to remind myself all the time you know, kids come and show you some crazy drawing that they made and the parents temptation, you just want to like focus on the other thing you were doing. So you say, oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. a yeah, Beautiful drawing. But you know, the kids know that you're trying to dismiss them. <laughs> you "Oh, tell me why you did that. Oh, that's interesting. Why did you draw that that way? Oh, why did you pick that color? And so I think as long as kids feel like they're being seen and they're being heard and that the parents are truly engaged, um, I think, you know, that that gives me confidence they'll 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 be okay. There is another element, I mean you touched on it that your friend circle and your kids' friend circles might influence a lot. So I do try to engineer that more than <laughs> more than I, <laughs> that's I, you know, you you try to it's I think every parent you you want your your child to hang out with like, yeah, that's a good habit that that other friend of yours, you know. <laughs> you don't say it, don't compare them, but it'll it'll hopefully, you know, bleed off on them.
0: And and sort of on that same tip though, I I'm we all know, I mean, I I have the privilege of going to some really great universities, great law school. You went to amazing um, undergrad and graduate schools. There's something about building on pillars of learning to get to a point where everyone around you is really excited about learning. And that's a very, that's a fun experience. And so to the extent that you've had a taste of that, I mean, you some many parents who have experienced that would want their children to experience it as well. So there's a natural sort of tendency to, to want them to do well and want them to, I guess, grasp your love of learning. But I guess the really important thing is that um, they're not you and, and they must they have to get there on their own. It it is it's challenging. What I'm asking is with, with all of your focus on mastery and 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 um, achievement, if any of your children and I'm not asking for specifics but if someone's not working up to what you see as their potential, is that particularly concerning to you
1: yeah, you know I, I've seen uh, growing up um, you know so, it wasn't my family, but some of the families we were close to were these pressure cooker households, and I saw how that leads to very high variance outcomes mm-hmm. um, you know, some of the kids do exactly what their parents wanted them to do and get their MDs and PhDs and all the rest. And actually, even then, sometimes the kids aren't maybe as happy as they want to be. And then sometimes the kids, for lack of a better word, crack. And, you know, I don't think any of us would want, we don't want those outcomes for our kids. We just want them to have, you know, meaningful, productive lives. Uh, You know, to your point, you want them to be around other stimulating people. So, you know, some of this obsession with name brand colleges and stuff there's very bad reasons which i think a lot of folks get into it which is they they kind of view it as a kind of a modern caste system that like oh Mm -hmm. this is a brand that i can apply to my child or my family that's super super unhealthy and and even if your child gets it will create all sorts of weird (laughs) neuroses um but if it's like hey you know I think every parent would want their child to be surrounded by a stimulating environment, something that brings out the best in them, then that's great. If it's the right environment for them, it's the right environment for them. Mm-hmm. You know, what I, me and my wife talk a lot about is, uh, and look, we all have these instincts where we're like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so's kid, you know, it makes you a little insecure. But we remind ourselves, as long as our kids have are equipped with the tools to really be able to engage in life and reach their potential, and and be kind of a good person, you know, like do the right thing when no one's looking, type of person. Um, that that's all we can ask for, uh, you know. And, and gravy would be if they live nearby. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's great, well, Sal. That is um, that's that's a perfect way to to wrap up. And goodness knows, uh, your children are seeing a great example of of what you're looking for from them. So so they've got a head start on that. Um, so. I really want to thank you, but before we go, you just have to spend a minute playing the GCP bonus round. I need two things from you. I need your favorite poem and your favorite two children's books, and they can be children's books you grew up with or ones that you've enjoyed reading to your children. Theodore
1: Roosevelt's Man in the Arena, which we could modify to person in the arena. Uh, <laughs> uh, I you know it's it's a very inspiring, you know, it's all about like look, it's easy to complain about things. It's easy to criticize others, but really unless you put yourself in the thick of things don't say anything um, and uh favorite children's books there's actually this really fun book called sunbread which I really enjoyed fun reading bread. with my my kids uh, I forgot who the author is and it rhymes it's very it, it, it's a really fun fun book um I mean I you know, the Harry Potter series, I think, are excellent. So,
0: <laughs> Well, you said that favorites. your college experience was sort of close to Hogwarts. So clearly that that it made a big impression on you, that Harry well, Potter series. Harry Potter had not
1: been written when I went to college. But in hindsight, <laughs> it was, you, you know, and this is the other thing, you know, like when I went to MIT, a lot of folks, not everyone has an amazing experience with, you know, at the same college. But when I went there, it was like I was like. It felt like Hogwarts. I was like, wow, there's all these, you know, when you're in high school in Metairie, Louisiana, you sometimes have to suppress your inner nerdiness (laughs) and how excited you are about learning. Uh, But when I was at MIT, I was like, wow, it is cool here to really get excited about learning. And you would, you know, you'd walk through the halls and there'd just be these people who are doing these, you know, it looked like magic. They were doing experiments and building things. And, and, and it really was this, this really, really special place.
0: Sal, those were great answers. And I want to thank you so, so much for being with us. This has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you and I'm sure parents listening are able to take away so much from your insights and your advice. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review where you find your podcast, and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. Please send comments and questions on any of these platforms because we really want to hear from you. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.